Isaiah chapter 58. It's page 744 in the Bible there in the pew. Isaiah 58. I'm going to read just about the first half of that chapter and we'll pick up the other half uh, as we go. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people the rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forgotten the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard in high. Is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? It is only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. Folks, keep that passage open before you. If you're here with us a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapters 56 and 57, you'll know that we're entering into a final historical period uh, in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Chapters 1 to 39, we said, were for a period before the exile. Chapters 40 through to 55 were written to people in exile over a 70-year period where they uh, were in in Babylon. And then the chapters from 56 through the rest of the book are for people who have already begun a return from exile. And we thought a couple of weeks ago about how this period of returning from exile was maybe more complicated than we give it credit for. We said that as well as being the best of times, it was maybe the worst of times, a a time of huge expectation, but also of immense difficulties. Not going to be easy for these returning exiles to resettle the land. And we thought in that sermon a couple of weeks ago about this community addressed by Isaiah and his disciples in this final part of the book. They're living in between the times. 
Their return from exile has begun, but they haven't been restored to anything like what they would have dreamed of. We thought about how their times, in some respects, are not unlike ours, because we too live between the times. Jesus has come. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. And yet, there's a whole lot around us that's far from ideal. It's far from what Jesus intends for this world. So we can expect to learn a lot in these final chapters about life in in between times, waiting for a new world. Most of our time in chapters 56 and 57, we were thinking about community. Uh, You might remember, God still has designs for his people. Just because they've been punished, they've been to exile, and now they've come home, it's not that God doesn't have to talk to them about their life. He, he picks up and reminds them of their calling. So he, he, we said a few things very briefly. We, said that, we talked about the context for a new community. It's still no perfect world. We talked about God's comfort for this new community. A lot of people are failing God, but, but a small number are living for him, and he wants to comfort them. And then we spent most of our time thinking about the nature of that new community. You might remember this. We talked about how it was a very different kind of community in areas such as work and money, sex and family, race and power. The pattern still holds true. This is a community that's living in less than perfect times. It's still trying to find its way and and you see that in the chapter that we read it's not a perfect world but God wants to show his people the way back to his plans that he always had for them to become the kind of countercultural community he always wanted them to be I'm not sure why but I'll say this this has become a key idea for me over these last number of weeks key passage for us, maybe, in Kirkpatrick Memorial in 2020. So the heading of the chapter there, I think it might mislead you. Uh, It's kind of right, but it doesn't probably deal with the main topic. It mentions fasting. Uh, The chapter does mention fasting, all right, but it's not primarily about fasting. If you cast your eye over the chapter, have a a skim of it there, Uh, the bit that we've read and even the bit that we haven't read. I wonder if you'd agree with me that this chapter is about social justice. This evening we're going to be thinking in Isaiah 58 about justice. We're going to think about the importance of justice, the meaning of justice, and how we might actually be the kind of people who would pursue justice. So first of all, it's importance. Justice is important to God. Really important. And the way Isaiah brings this before the people is quite shocking here. This is going to be uncomfortable for us. I think, I hope that's okay. I hope we allow that God, if he wants, can speak truth into our lives and and it unsettles us. This will unsettle us if you pay attention to it. Look look at what he says. Chapter, he talks about a people, verses 2 to 4. Day after day they seek me. See that phrase, to seek God? 
That, that's quite a particular idea in the Jewish worldview. That means you're a worshiper. It means you're a person who does the stuff to access the presence of God. You, you go to temple, you observe the feasts, you pay the tithe, you pray the prayers. Day after day, they do it. So these guys aren't hit and miss. They're not part-timers. They, they're committed and they have an ongoing commitment to their, their search for God. They're the kind of people who come to church twice on a Sunday. They're twicers. People like us. The good guys. All right? Isaiah goes on, verse 2. He says that they seem eager to do good. That's a wrong translation. It's just plain wrong. It's understandable, but it's wrong. Verse 1 describes people who are in rebellion against God. And then verse 2 describes the same people, and they're coming often to worship. They're doing all these good things. So the paradox, I think, just seemed too big for the, the translators. So they said these people only seem eager to know God's ways. That's not what the text says. The text says they are eager to do my ways. So let's hold the paradox. Let it, let it stand. So these people, they're eager to do God's way. They're coming regularly to worship. But, says the Lord, they're living in sin and rebellion. It seems to be possible to be meticulous about your worship, your religious observance, and to be rebelling against God at the same time. And by the way, it's not only God who's not comfortable with this relationship. The people themselves, look at verse 3, they don't like it either. They say, why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? God's not happy and the people aren't happy. What's wrong here? The people bring their question to God, verse 3, their fasting question. So God answers their fasting question, verses 4 and following. He tells them why he doesn't like their fasting, and then he tells them what kind of a fasting he does like. Look at verses 6 and 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see them naked to clothe them? We could take a bit of time if, if we chose to, to look at each of those specific expressions of, of justice. But I'd rather deal with the, the passage in quite an abrupt kind of a way. I want you to jump forward. Jump to Matthew 25, very quickly. Flick it up. It's one of the most challenging parts of Jesus' teaching. Page 995, if that helps you. In Matthew 25, I'd never really appreciated this, but in Matthew 25, Jesus is preaching Isaiah 58. He's also preaching a number of other Old Testament passages which talk about the importance of caring for the poor. So, for example, in Proverbs 14.31, we read this. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. 
You oppress the poor, you're showing contempt for God. Proverbs 19, verse 17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. So that backdrop helps us understand a little bit more fully what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. You might know this passage. He's talking about the day of judgment. He's talking about dividing people into those who are saved and those who are lost. And he tells us what God's going to say to the lost. Look at verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. And they, all, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger and needing clothes, or a sick or in prison and didn't help you, he'll say, truly I tell you, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I always thought that passage was a bit crazy. It just seemed a bit out there. I don't study on this stuff now. I see its roots in the Old Testament are much deeper than I realized. There's a consistency here in God's word that had been lost on me. Jesus here is preaching the Old Testament. He who is kind to the poor is kind to God. He who oppresses the poor oppresses God. Jesus is saying that if we claim to love God, but don't love the poor. We're kidding ourselves. If we don't love the hungry and the homeless and the sick, then we don't love God. You might be doing your church thing, God says, but if you're not yet in a loving relationship with the poor and the sick, then you don't love me. Challenging stuff, isn't it? Tim Keller talks uh, at one point about justice, and he calls it the grand symptom of real faith. A real relationship with God. By the way, just in case we still want to try and wriggle off this hook, if we want to say, yeah, Isaiah 58, a powerful passage, Matthew 25. But there are only a couple of short passages in the whole of the Bible. If we maybe still doubt that justice is important in the grand scheme of things, flick back with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We didn't deal with the first five chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, this prophet who we've been spending time with, we've been getting to know his message Chapter 1, God says, verses 11 and 12, he tells the people that he's fed up with their offerings, fed up with their sacrifices, fed up with their worship gatherings. And what does he say? Verse 17, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. 
Folks, justice isn't an afterthought. Just in case we're imagining, ah, we've got right to chapter 58, and that's the first time Isaiah's mentioned justice. No. It's the first time we have chosen to really look deeply into it. It's been there all along, from start to finish, repeated like a thread all the way through. Folks, justice is of fundamental importance to this prophet because it's of fundamental importance to God, and it has to be of fundamental importance to us. So there it is, the importance of justice. I want to think for a few moments about the meaning of justice because it's not what you and I think it is. It's going to take me a while, I think, to get it. I've had a chance to read up on this this week. I'm going to share it with you now. But I think it's going to take time for this really to to bed into my heart and mind. What does the Bible mean when it talks about justice? Well, the biblical background probably to, to most justice passages is a positive idea, the idea of shalom. You've maybe heard of shalom, a Hebrew word. Whenever we are asked to translate it, we normally say it means peace, but, but that, it, it's kind of right, but it's not big enough. So whenever I say peace to you, you think, oh, that means the absence of war. That's not what shalom is. Shalom's far bigger than that. Or you might say, you know, it's a bit like how I feel when I've had a, a few days away from work and a, a well-being experience. I've been to the spa for the weekend I'm feeling peace. Well, it is that, but it's way more than that too. Shalom's a way of thinking about the world where everything fits together properly and everything works, and it's all beautiful. Think of the world as a fabric of interdependent threads. So if I, if I throw down a heap of, of fabrics from the, I don't know, from a carpet manufacturer or something, just, just heap a, a load of fabrics onto our communion table there, that, that or, or a heap of threads, that wouldn't be a fabric, that's just a heap of threads. That's what the world often is like. But the world wasn't designed to be a heap of threads. It's designed to be a beautiful fabric. Interdependence. And the interdependence comes when, when things are woven together, when they've countless interconnections, when everything fits. And the more the threads are woven together, the stronger and the warmer and the more beautiful the fabric becomes. The Bible says that the whole created order is supposed to be like that. Like a beautiful fabric each part of creation depending on the other for its well-being. Let me, let me give you a few examples if I've lost you a wee bit with that. Even inside your own body, you need this inter, interconnectedness, interdependence. The, the processes of the body rely on each other to extents that you, know, you could study for the rest of your life. Uh, I'll give you a, a, an example of a, a breakdown of this interdependence. A cancer is when a cell really starts working against the body, when it starts to do damage to other parts of the body. And we know what happens with cancer. Our bodies get very, very sick 
and, and sometimes even die. That, that's a, a very serious breakdown of physical shalom. Or think for a second about your inner life, your, your psyche, the different parts, your, your reason and your conscience, your feelings. Whenever they're working together, we sometimes experience a real sense of well-being. We, we feel good. You might call it happiness. But what happens whenever your inner world is conflicted, when different parts are pulling in different directions? Say your, your feelings say, I want to do one thing, but your conscience over here says, I mm, don't know, that's not a good idea. That's, that's. Then we start to experience guilt. And we're not at peace we don't have shalom. It's a breakdown of psychological shalom. Think, think about how we use resources in our society. Whenever those who have resources offer them to the whole community, when they look for the connections and the interdependence, when they plow their money into the health service and the schools and the parks where the children play, then we have what we might call a strong social fabric. See, the, the language is even there in our political discourse. But whenever people don't do that, whenever we come to the point where we say, my way to happiness is to pursue my own individual agenda to keep all my resources for myself, then we have a situation where the fabric unravels. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. So this biblical idea of, of justice is a little bit different than, than what you and I think of. I, I've started by trying to build a picture of biblical justice, this interconnected fabric where all things come together for good. Whenever I say justice to a Belfast person in 2020, they have a modern Western secular view of justice that goes something like this. Justice is about de defending a person's individual rights, isn't it? Make sure that nobody's being exploited or ripped off. Uh, don't, don't hear me wrong, that's a great thing. That's very important. Justice must start there, but that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty low bar. There are a whole lot of people living in our culture who aren't having any of their legally enshrined rights violated, but they're living miserable lives. Where you and I aren't probably breaking any laws over and against them, but we're not inviting them into shalom. God's justice, you see, demands and promises so much more. It's all about this interdependence. It's about those of us who have stuff learning that the stuff that we have isn't our own to keep. Learning that our stuff isn't something that should divide society, but that's something that can be used to start to rebuild the interconnections, to strengthen the social fabric my Old Testament professor, Bruce Walkey, um, he is a real language guy, so he's, a bit of an, he's one of the guys who goes deep into the biblical text. In the commentary he wrote on Proverbs, he, he gives this definition of what a righteous 
person is in the Bible and what a wicked person is, this is going to shock you. This is somebody explaining to us what God's word regards as righteousness and wickedness. The righteous person is a person who disadvantages him or herself for the good of the community. And the wicked person is the person who sees his or her resources as only belonging to themselves. I'm not going to pass a page round and ask us to write our name and put an R for righteous or a W for wicked. This is what God's word says. Unless I disadvantage myself for the poor, if I keep it for myself, that's wickedness in God's eyes. Folks, if you go back through the whole of the Bible and look for places where it talks about righteousness or wickedness and plug that definition in, we're reading a very different book, aren't we? This is very radical, what God's calling us to. He's telling us that not to share with other people who have less than us isn't just stinginess. Do you know the way you feel a bit stingy? If there's an opportunity to give to a charity and you don't take it, none of us likes that feeling. It's not stingy, God says. It's unjust. And maybe you're struggling really to take that on board. Maybe you're struggling. We're saying, but how is that unjust, Christoph? I'm entitled to what I have. I've, I've had my education. I've, I've learned stuff. I've worked hard. I have my stuff for that reason. And people who don't have stuff, there's reasons why they don't have stuff. Let's test that for a second at a local level. Why is it that a kid born into my family, living in my postcode, has ten times a chance of success in life than a kid born two miles down the road? There, there are things we can say about that. You know, the radio chat shows are full of it. You can analyze it whatever way you like depending on your politics. You might say, well, it's the system that's failed them. If our education system was better, then, you know, so that's one answer. Or, or somebody else might say, well, we've, we've got to strengthen the family. This, this has all got worse since the breakdown of the family. It's all about, about moral values. So it's, is it social structures or is it moral values? But what we never do, I hope, is we never blame the kid. I hope you're not sitting there thinking it's that six-year-old kid's fault. What's the kid supposed to do at the age of six? Talk to its single mother because the father's long gone and say, Mom, it's time we moved house into a better postcode so that I get to go to the right kind of school. What's the kid supposed to say? Mom, I know why I'm failing. Because you didn't read to me when I was two years old. Because actually, you're not a great reader. 
yourself because your story is quite like mine, just one generation further back. Folks, we live in a city that's deeply, deeply unfair. And people are written off before they finish primary school. And I think God's word this evening is asking us to wake up to that. And the biblical view of justice... Well, well listen, why do we not like thinking about this? The, the truth that we live in an unjust world. Let me spell it out. The reason I don't like thinking about this, and probably you don't either, is the injustice that there is in Belfast is stacked in our favor. If it was the other way around, we mightn't be so precious about it. But it is stacked in our favor. Many of us are very healthily on the happy side of this dividing line. And the Bible says that if I don't... So the world's unjust. You're a victim of injustice. I hope you know that. You just happen to be on the one side of the line. But it's unjust. And God's word calls us to care about that. To notice that, to start asking questions about that, to start taking steps about that. That's the kind of fast he's looking for. It's the kind of worship he wants. We're going to take a few more moments to look at some of the other stuff in this chapter. We're mostly done, but we're going to pause there for a song. One or two of the songs that our songwriters give us are a little bit honest about how difficult and dark the world is. Not many. Most of them are a bit happy, clappy. Shine, Jesus, shine. But this one, who can sound the depths of sorrow in the Father heart of God? We've thought about the importance of justice and the meaning of it. Are you feeling guilty yet? I... That's not, that's not what this is about. I, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty. What I am interested in doing is opening God's word, having a look, seeing what it says, and letting it land with us, hearing God's voice, responding to it in faith and obedience. What are we going to do? How might we become the kind of people who pursue justice? It's not by feeling guilty. If you feel guilty tonight, you'll go home and you'll flick on the TV and you'll get over it. Or worse than that, you won't get over it and you just carry your guilt around. But that's not what we want. We want to change. We want to do something. It's not by feeling guilty. It's not by adding social action on your to-do list. Do you know the way you're looking for stuff to do? You know, don't have enough going on. People always tell me that. Christoph, I'm just, I've just nothing in the diary. I'm just not busy. Any ideas? What we need to do, I think, is to identify more fully with Jesus Christ. 
I didn't really see this, only in a superficial way until now, doing a bit of work for this evening. Jesus Christ, God among us, experienced poverty throughout his life and injustice in his death. If we identify with him, if we do what Jesus always wanted us to do, and that is to come so close to him that the Apostle Paul could describe it as being in Christ, we're going to be people who think very differently about poverty and injustice. You see, whenever God says in Proverbs, when you oppress the poor, you oppress me. Or when Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these brothers, you did for me. The message is loud and clear to a point. The message is something like this. God identifies with the poor. And, And that's kind of understood. Actually, I'm going to have to say this. For me, it's one of the great scandals of evangelicalism that the, many of the theologians who, who speak most eloquently about God's concern from the poor are from a much more liberal tradition. I, I think that's a scandal. I think people who claim to take the word of God seriously have got to get into this stuff. I've got to own it and make it a part of our theology because you can't, you can't claim to, to love the Lord and love the word if if, if we sidestep these issues. We should be all over this, how God identifies with the poor. What does that actually mean? Does it mean that God empathizes for the, with the poor? He does, of course. That his heart breaks for the poor. That's the kind of language we use nowadays. And we hear that and we think, isn't that lovely? I don't think that's what it means in the end. Bible-believing Christians don't have a God who, who empathizes, who, who stands here and empathizes with the poor. That's not who, who our God is. Our God became poor. He was born into a cattle trough. His parents, when they went to the temple for his circumcision, were told that they made the sacrifice of two doves. That's the cheapy sacrifice. That's benefits class. Was Jesus on free school meals? Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was not a privileged, wealthy person. Jesus never felt that he had a home. Didn't he talk about that? Foxes of holes, the birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He rode into town, think, think about his last days, rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed room. When he had died, they put him in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. Folks, in God, Jesus Christ became poor. He didn't hang around with poor people and take photos with them to canvas votes. He became poor. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to think about this. Jesus Christ was among the oppressed. Jesus Christ suffered terrible, a grave miscarriage of, of, of justice. 
Uh, there's a, an article you can read, The Illegalities of Christ's Trial, by a theologian called James Boyce. And he spells out all the injustice that there is around Jesus' trial. The nature of his arrest, the interrogation, the time of night that it happened. Did you ever notice that Jesus has no defense in, in any of his trials? He was struck while he was being questioned. There was no due notice given that this trial was to take place. Everything about it from start to finish, it's a massive miscarriage of justice. Our God knows what it is to be on the wrong side of unfair trials. Do you see it now? Do you see how Jesus can say, whatever you did for the poor or didn't do for the oppressed, you did or didn't do for me because he's among them. He's one of them. Folks, we can't say we love Jesus if we don't care for the poor. This is one of those sermons I don't really know what the answer is. But it's got me thinking a bit. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to God and thankful for some, some beautiful green shoots that I see around all of this. You've maybe heard me mention this in passing. The Bible says care for the widow. What do we do in Kirkpatrick? We visit our older members. We visit in the dementia unit down there at Bloomfield's Nursing Home. That's a great start. That's great. I wonder could we grow that? I'd love to see a time when there's no lonely older person in our parish because we're the people of God. The Bible says, care for the poor. We give to storehouse. People religiously buy their stuff and bring it here. We're, that's a great start. We have a mercy fund in church. I've maybe mentioned it in passing once or twice. Um, I'll give you an example of how this works. I had a lady call here. Um, oh yeah, it was, it was Wick. You know, I, I sneaked in. It was the last day of my Christmas holidays, really. I sneaked in to do a bit of work to get ready for the Sunday that was coming. And I thought, brilliant, there's nobody else here. I'm going to have loads of peace. Doorbell goes. I made the mistake of answering the doorbell. So it was a woman comes in. I bring her in. And she says, tells her story, and it's a, a difficult story. And she says, I have no heat. My oil's run out. We have a mercy fund. I said, who's your oil supplier? Give me their details. I'll phone them. And we put a bit of oil in that woman's tank. You did. This is a church fund. It's not me. So we do stuff. And I love that. I think it's great. Care for the foreigner. Globe Cafe. Talk to somebody sometime who's moved to our city from overseas and ask them how much it means to them if somebody notices them and gives them a welcome. God says, look out for the foreigner, the alien in your midst. Wonder what else he's calling us to there. Care for the fatherless, vulnerable children. We had our home for good Sunday a couple of weeks ago. 
Was that just last Sunday? Don't know. Two weeks ago. The Lord's drawn us into that. Folks, I I share that with you because it's a way actually of knocking the guilt on the head. I don't want you to go home today feeling guilty. I want you to go home feeling encouraged, but not asking what next. This is not a sideline for us. This is our calling. We want to be the people who care about the things that God cares about. Folks, I mentioned at the start, I'm going to go down to this event. You can come and talk to me at coffee time. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, beyond uh, fuel poverty or or whatever. It's, It's going to be another... It's going to be another place to learn about this stuff. I don't know much about it. Uh, If you want to join me, uh, we could talk about going down there together. What would happen if we really move deeper and deeper into this life that God calls us to? Isaiah tells us in the remainder of our chapter. We're going to read it to close. I'm not going to say a thing about it. Picking up there in... Chapter 58, verse 9b, God tells us what's going to happen. He says, if, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with pointing the finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you, always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He'll strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. People who rebuild the city itself. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Wouldn't it be beautiful to have that kind of a reputation? Think of how much glory that would give to God. Let's pray. Lord, it's slowly beginning to dawn on us. You're beautiful and you want your beauty to shine in this world, but you've chosen to make us the vehicles of your presence. We're the lamp. And Lord, goodness, we're dim sometimes. The lamp is not at all where it could and should be. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. It's been a, I don't know, a spiritual kick up the backside to me. Um, Lord, if it's unsettled us, then we accept that. Help us not to move beyond being unsettled too quickly. But Lord, I pray that it'll do more than that. I pray that it'll prompt us and I pray that your spirit would come now and show us what it is you'd have us do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our closing song gives us a chance to start with the reality, start with the, the darkness, but to, to move through history to a time when uh, there'll be great celebrations. Uh, let's stand and sing it together. Let's, let's imagine ourselves playing our part in this making all things new, this renewing of creation that God wants to do through his people. Let's stand and sing together.